Welcome to Game Over Montreal, everybody. That was a pretty exciting game from the Montreal Canadiens, but not nearly as exciting as the off-ice shenanigans going on. And to break it all down with me today, I've got Chris Watkins. Let's bring him in right now. How's it going, man? Yeah, it was uh, interesting. Like, we talked before the show started a little bit, and a 6-3 win, similar to the one last weekend against the Predators. Similar kind of style of game, you know? Uh, they just got... Uh, they're saying we're on mute. This is... Uh, okay. So, on OBS, I am not on mute. I triple-check this. It should not be muted. No volume on guest. Okay. Properties. Okay. So, we're having issues with the volume coming from Zoom. I don't understand why, but I'm going to figure that out. So frustrating. Bear with us, guys. We were getting a bunch of issues when uh, we started the Zoom. With On my end, we have to run everything through a third-party app for the uh, Zoom audio to go into OBS. And that is not seeming to work. So I'm going to try to reset that if we can. We might have to relaunch the stream, but... Just so everybody knows, it's going to be an interesting show tonight because there's crazy things that went on off the ice. So I'll just kind of keep talking to uh, pretend that everything's normal and Chris can do hand signals <laughs> and uh, tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> All right, so we are going to try to relaunch this, I think. Yeah, OBS is definitely not our friend right now. They are not doing a nice thing for us um apologies to everyone who's in the stream right now i'm gonna close obs and relaunch so we'll be down for a couple minutes here i think and hopefully when we come back chris will be able to be heard on the stream i'm assuming that it's going to be obs that's the problem and we won't have to quit our zoom call all right so we'll be back in a minute here all right, so we are streaming again. I'm going to send out the link again here because apparently nothing can be easy tonight. But you should be able to be heard now, Chris. Uh, Chris Watkins is here. Yo, yo, yo. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> so uh, I'll just pop the link in the old one. And hopefully people will join us here because this is a crazy start but uh yeah so uh let's start with the game i guess well you know what let's let's talk about the game after because uh i think the most immediate thing that we need to talk about is the kerfuffle that went on <laughs> while the game was going on which uh, we'll start out with the scott mellonby stuff yeah uh, Scott Mellonby, according to Pierre Lebrun, interviewed with uh, Jeff Molson for the GM job, which says writings on the wall, uh, Mark Bergerman's not coming back. So that's, that's done. 
and he also wanted to be president of hockey ops and apparently was told no on both. <laughs> and then resigned. Can you remember the last time any outside of the Rangers last year? Or w- was that during the season that the Rangers had the resignations last year? Uh, no, I think I think that was after the season, if I remember correctly, the timeline. Because uh, you, you talk about John Davis. I think John Davidson resigned in season. And then, yes, and, yeah. Yeah, jury was out there. So, so yeah. Yeah, so this is, I can't remember another time where a member of management resigned from a team in season that wasn't like to immediately take a job somewhere else. Yeah, uh, no, or, or or more specifically, not uh, under fire from some scandal. <laughs> of, yes. Of some, uh, uh, but yeah, it's a very rare situation, obviously, because to your point, um, generally you're doing that either involuntarily or with the intention of, you know, moving onto a better position. Um, and obviously most teams aren't hiring uh, at this point in time. So, yeah, it's a very risky proposition. Uh, for Scott Bellamy, but you know, clearly he felt very strongly, or he saw the writing on the wall and and you know decided to make the move before it was made for him. So, yeah, because I mean, when you're meeting with uh, the, the the owner of the team who is currently the president of hockey operations, which is a big like <laughs> a, a thing here, like that people talk about all the time that he probably shouldn't be, right. and continues to prove that he shouldn't be, but. When uh, also, I think uh, Elliot Friedman said on the broadcast that Mark Bergevin suggested Scott Mellonby to be the next GM. It was his recommendation. So if Mellonby is the guy that the last guy who's probably leaving is recommending and the owner is saying not happening, that signals a change in direction, right? Like that, aside from the whole francophone thing. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if Melanby can speak French. I he might. Sure. I don't know. But uh, aside from that, to me that says that Mark Bergevin is not calling shots right now. Yeah, I mean it. It, it, it definitely is an indication that um, that ownership wants to see something else. Maybe not the entire. Maybe not the entirety. Of, and you know, if you're a pro. Uh, <laughs> you're a pro Bergman uh, fan for some reason. Uh, you can maybe hold out hope that you know there's still some likelihood that they'll bring him back, but with a different sort of you know set of leadership underneath them. Um, which you often see with like coaches where they'll fire the assistants, but a lot of the coaches sort of stay on board um, to see if they can uh, they can bring them back. So I remember this was a situation with uh, the Blackhawks with Joel Quinville, and I think they fired Kevin Deneen. Um, and Quinville wasn't happy about that. And that eventually was a precursor to Quinville uh, leaving or uh, being shown the door as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I would probably lean towards Mark Bergeron not coming back if I had to put money on it, but I would have put money on him not being allowed back in the first place anyway, <laughs> like quite some time ago. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think for the future long-term direction of the franchise, like, I don't think, I don't think it's a... Uh, Mark Bergman is a talent that you need to sort of bend over backwards to try to keep happy in my, in my point of view. Yeah. I, I would, especially on an expiring contract, right? Like he's not, he doesn't have a lot of sway in the future. I would assume, although he did sign a bunch of long-term contracts (laughs) fairly recently. 
So it's yes. not it's not quite as bad as the whole Pete Chiarelli signing Koskinen to a multi-year deal 30 hours before he was fired, but Mark Bergevin definitely had the reins fully entering this season, but it seems like now that's pretty much not happening. So the right. writing appears to be on the wall that there's going to be a change at the head of the Montreal Canadiens, and they got permission to talk about talk to, not about, uh, Jeff Gorton. And this is really exciting for me because I know that you've been a huge critic of Jeff Gordon and the job he did with the Rangers for various re- reasons. And I saw like a lot of people pointing out his like short stint with the Bruins. Right. And like for good reason, Sure, I think you could argue like not many people have gotten as much done in one summer as Jeff Gordon <laughs> did with the Bruins that year. But that was also a long time ago. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's also, you know, what a, I think I've ran through the, the three top things that, you know, sort of make a work in GM, which is uh, somebody else building up a core for you, uh, getting draft luck and having cap space. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and a lot of those. And, and for Gordon, he had the magical fourth one, the sort of warp whistle, which was being located in New York, uh, which, uh, you know, get to know Adam Fox, the hometown boy that sort of moved heaven and earth to come home. And then, uh, Artemi Panarin, uh, who was dedicated, you know, dedicated to you know being in a big market, and then in theory Jacob Shuba as well. So you, you know, you, you know, three of your biggest acquisitions were sort of based off the fact of your location, um, and so this is a similar sort of issue with like the Lakers in, 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 in the NBA, where it's like, okay, how good is the gym? Because yeah. it's literally LeBron just wanted to be someplace sunnier than Cleveland, and LA made the most sense. Um, but yeah, uh, so I mean, that's part one of it. I mean, I think part two is <sighs> my main critique of, of Gordon on this, like they obviously lucked into, you know, the, the cackle, you know, draft, like, you know, that's fine. That happens every year, you know, Philadelphia moving up to get Nolan Patrick and all that stuff like that. Like teams move up in the draft every year. That's, uh, that's, you know, something that happens. Um, the, Ability to get uh, Alexis uh, Lafreniere uh, um, during the bubble year was just completely asinine to me. And I hated that the league did it. Um, the Blackhawks were in perfect position to get it. I think the Canadians were as well. And the fact that the incentive was for if you make the playoffs, you don't get uh, <laughs> uh, in the second lottery made zero sense to me whatsoever. Because if you're one of those down on the left teams, you are are incentivized to want your team to lose. So then that way you can get a top pick and the Rangers being gifted that and then still not knowing how to build around that very fortuitous gift of the uh, number one, uh, first overall, uh, it was like, I, I, was, I mean, I had been out in Gordon for a while just because I don't believe he had a sense of direction. Uh, and so <laughs> if Canadians fans are frustrated by Mark Regevin, I don't think they'll uh, find uh, salvation in the arms of Jeff Gordon. I feel like if you're trying to look for like a positive to spin it, could you say like how much of the directionless uh, nature of the Rangers where like they talk about going to a full rebuild and then was it even a full season later that they signed Panarin? And it's like, it's hard to turn down a guy like Panarin, but at the same time, like if you're trying to go into a full rebuild, you probably don't want to be signing like an $11 million contract on a guy in their like edge of the prime. Right. And like how much of that could have been like John Davidson. Correct. Yeah. And it, has his yeah. thumb on the scale as well. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a, a common refrain for the Blackhawks as well, uh, you know, that John McDonough, you know, Stan Bowman couldn't do what he really wanted to do because John McDonough was, you know, only focused on the business and all that stuff like that. And obviously, like, with all the off-the-ice stuff that sort of resulted from that power structure, you know, that's, you know, definitely, uh, <laughs> you know, not something that you want to see replicated. Uh, but even with the on-ice stuff, the concern was that, or the the reporting was at the time that the Blackhawks couldn't do a full rebuild because you know the sellout streak was very important to upper management and, and, and the ownership. Um, and so for Jeff Gordon, yeah, obviously like that sort of looming figurehead in the back that has a, the owner's ear and sort of can make or break your regime is definitely critical. Um, to your point, it's very hard to pass up a player like Benarin. Um, there's not that many quality free agents that come onto the market in the first place. Um, the fact that, you know, a player like Panarin on the right team can, you know, bring you championship equity and put you over the top uh, with the right roster construction. Like, yeah, I can understand that. I think my biggest issue was not even that. Like, I I, I think they paid a little bit too much for Panarin, given the fact that he wanted to come in. Um, but uh, that was fine. It was the sort of other stuff around it that was more problematic to me. I'm signing D- Jacob Truba to the $8 million contract, you know, even in the best case scenario. Um, people probably didn't predict him falling off like he did without Dustin Bufflin um, and Josh Morrissey, but you know that's probably a little bit rich for for him. Um, Chris Kreider, who's having a great season this year, but you sort of look two or three years down, that contract's probably not going to look great. Uh, you know, not being able to pull the trigger on Jack Eichel last year, probably before he got injured, um, which probably screwed both the Rangers and the Sabers because Jack Eichel broke, you know, basically broke his back in the game for the Sabers. And maybe had he been on a team that was more competent and didn't need him in that position, you know, you're probably talking about, you know, still Pete Jack Eichel. So uh, I think there was a lot of sort of sliding doors that came as a result of that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, like, you know, I mean, the Rangers are playing very well uh, right now. And, and uh, you know, you definitely have to give credit somewhere. <laughs> like somebody had acquired those players. Uh, but um, I think what the team could have been, and I think that's been my biggest complaint, is that the opportunity cost where you could have yes. made the 2010 Blackhawks or, you know, the, you know, the 2017 uh, Lightning or, you know, some team that's stacked with talent where you have your, you know, still in their prime veterans or still contributing veterans, plus just a wave of up and coming talent and then some cap space to add in like a Brandon size sort of trade like that could have been them. And then you're talking about a perennial contender, what they probably have sort of run themselves into is probably a really good team that could probably make a conference finals run, maybe even like a long shot Stanley cup run, but this is probably, I don't see a team that's going to be competing for the next, you know, four or five years from now and, and, you know, may potentially go on a dynastic run. And that's very impossible for a lot of teams to do, but this team had a chance to do that, but you had to sort of hit all the right things. And I feel like he was two fifty fifty 50 to sort of make that happen. Yeah, and that honestly sounds very familiar to Mark Bergevin. And for the Rangers, it's unfortunate because what you just described is exactly what they were when they right. had Prime Lundqvist, right? They were a team that was like just good enough to make a couple of those like really decent runs, but never actually get to the promised land. Uh, right. There's a comment here on the YouTube chat, which like obviously I can't host the show and look at Twitter, but TV reporting, they're the rights holder here in Quebec for the Montreal Canadiens that Mark Bergevin learned about these developments at the same time as everyone on Twitter. That's, <laughs> that's rough. That's rough. Cause like, not only is that rough from like his job security standpoint, like him and Jeff Molson have a 10 year relationship. Sure. Yeah. That's, 
I don't know. I mean, I I think that it, it is time for a change, as I've said repeatedly on this show and on everywhere else that I talk and write for years now. But uh, that is uh, that's a tough one. You know, it, it's similar to the whole Vegas situation with Flurry in the offseason, right? Where you had uh, Alan Walsh talking about how they didn't even tell Flurry that he was on the trade block. And they were like, no, we did. It was like, but it, it seems like they didn't, you know, and I get it to an extent, like being cutthroat is something that you don't see enough of in the NHL. Yeah. But also there's like that base layer of respect that you're like, you always talk about, like, you, you always see people talking about like, Oh, you know, hockey people are the best people. And it's like, they're not though. Are, are but, I mean, that's me. But even from that perspective, uh, sort of being cutthroat, like you can still be cut. So you can still be cutthroat, but like, there's something that I, guess, I guess live for that where they you know just like you know I'm gonna come in and just be a jerk and you know fire everybody and all that stuff like that who cares what other people think of me and what you often hear like players say this about coaches was like I like that coach because even though that they were a jerk I always knew where I stood with them you know they might say you're the worst player ever but you know when I was good they'd be telling me like yeah you played great today but you're still like the worst player ever but you had a great game today like you know it was always like very cut and dry and people respect that it, yeah, it's like Tortorella, right? The way players talk exactly. about him. Exactly. So yeah, yeah, exactly. And so from that perspective, it's like, okay, yeah, you can be like, yeah, you know, this is what it is. You know, it's really hard. More likely, not going to bring you back, so on and so forth. Um, and as an owner, you have the power. Like the GM can't do anything without your approval. It's not like he's going to go out and trade, you know, Nick Suzuki, you know, for a seven round pick just to spite you. Like he can't do that without your approval. But from that perspective, like unless it is something that you are like replacing him and trying to find that replacement and like internally and don't want to let that person know about it per se like to me it is very it's very facetious to be like oh yeah we you know we're gonna be cutthroat and cold-hearted and do all this but then also be like very secretive about it like either just own it and say like yeah this is how we're rolling with it or not uh you know going back to columbus i feel like yarmo's that way where it's like yeah we we did this but i'm gonna let you know why and tell you why and I think people can respect that. They may not agree with it, but yeah, sort of doing both of them is, is sort of like two faced in my opinion. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you there. I'm, I'm totally with you. I think that if you're going to do the cutthroat thing, you've got to, you got to own it. You got to stand up in front yeah, you of own it. Yeah. the podium or stand in the person's office or have them come to your office and tell them what you're doing. You don't have to be nice about it, right. but you got to be forthright. You know, you can't hide. And that's, it's a little bit disappointing and part of the problem, I think like it's indicative of maybe how this organization has been run for yeah. the last, you know, decade plus that Molson's been in charge and unfortunate, unfortunate. Um, I guess we should probably talk about the game a little bit. We'll probably circle back to this news as well, because there's just, there's a lot of chaos going on right now, <laughs> but, uh, I, I think the one guy that really stood out to me outside of Jake Allen in that first period and through the rest of the game was Josh Anderson. And yeah, he yeah. talked before the game about how like the leaders on the team, the older guys on the team have to be a lot better. And I was on with Shereen Ahmed uh, last episode was just last night. And we were talking about how Anderson has a tendency where when he thinks that he has to be the guy, he's very like individualistic and uh, you you simultaneously love the guy who thinks they want to be the guy that to break the game open, but also when they don't have the ability to do right. that, you know, like a McDavid, when they do it over and over again, they often get caught. But I thought he hit that balance perfectly tonight, where he was physical, he was engaged, 
Right. He was pushing play. He had some nice defensive plays. Maybe Josh Anderson's best game as a Montreal Canadian. Yeah, I mean, and that's the, always a hard part. You know, one about hockey overall as a sport, which is like, you know, you know, LeBron comes back from injury and the team's not playing well and all that stuff like that. It's like, okay, you know, I'm going to you know, dominate my matchup and I'm going to take, you know, 15 shots in the fourth quarter and, you know, make a defensive play um, and just exert more energy than I normally would in this situation. Um, because my team really needs it. And so you sort of do that, you know, a pitcher in baseball can be like, Hey, you know, it's the, you know, bottom of the ninth, I got to get this guy out and get the shutout. You know, I'm going to put a little gas on this, you know, pitch or whatever, or something like that. Um, and hockey is a little bit harder to, for individuals to try to take over the game 100%. without doing something that breaks, like that breaks the system. You know, a player trying to do too much and dangle through seven, you know, through four defenders or whatever, uh, unless they're McDavid, it's probably not going to end well. It's probably going to end with a very primo chance going the other way. And so from that perspective, uh, I think your point is valid where the best way you can do that and impose your will on the game is to bring that energy from, from the opening, you know, puck drop, um, you know, bring that physicality. And, and Josh Anderson is a really interesting use case. Like I didn't agree. I didn't agree with the contract that they gave him one because I was surprised that uh, Bergevin gave him so much leverage. Like, you know, if you're going to trade for me. I need a seven year contract and nothing. Uh, I'm going to be a rental. Um, yep. And I didn't think he was good enough for all that. I was like, all right, we're going to make you a rental then. But with that being said, um, he particularly at his peak in Columbus was the exact version of the sort of, power forward with the speed that all the teams are looking for now. Um, like he was in like the 95th percentile on both power and speed uh, in my metrics. And he fell off uh, a little bit. That's actually what made him available in the first place. Um, you know, he had the one goal and, and sort of had a bounce back season last year. But if he can bring that effort every single night, then you're a team that's not in the situations that you are normally in uh, that they've been in this year where you're sort of falling behind because that energy is contagious. Yeah, it sort of brings everyone else, you know, and forces them to step their game up. Um, and if Anderson, you know, he's not going to be able to score. He doesn't have the skill set to, you know, score on a regular basis, but just bringing that regular effort and intensity, um, that's something he can do and is capable of, but he just hasn't done it on a consistent basis, um, particularly with the Canadians uh, since he's been there. Yeah, I, I wonder if it's one of those situations where because he's counted on to be that physical guy that, like, just managing an 82 game season, you can't do that every night, right? Like, I think this season he's been more consistent than he was last season, but there's still games where you don't really notice him. And when he does like show up, it's just his usual like gun down the, the wide wing there and try to cut in at the last minute. And oftentimes he's just edged out and either goes behind the net or goes like straight into the net. Right, and he, yeah. He's not a talented enough passer to take advantage of his line mates for the most part. On right. those rushes, although he has made some pretty decent passes this year, which did not exist at all last season. I believe last season, at or it might have been last season or the one before, he had like the worst passing metrics in the entire league among forwards. It was it was really bad. It was really bad. So he has shown a lot of improvement. I think he was, uh, especially since the Penguins made a push late. Like I think Allen was the first star of the game because of the way he held that first period steady, but at the end. Do you give it to Josh Anderson as the player of the game? He he kind of closed the game out with the empty netters too. Like, yeah, he was huge tonight. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I uh, I saw he was like had eleven shots, 
uh, shots today or something like that. Um, I still would give it to to Jake Allen only from the perspective of, you know, they're not they're not in a position for uh, Josh Anderson to put him over the top if it's not for Jake Allen sort of holding forth for long enough. Hundred uh, percent. Two periods. Uh, so that's probably where I have to give it because that's all you want your goalie to do is put you in a position to win. Um, I was talking about this with um, some Sabres fans the other night, which is like uh, based off the 32 thoughts uh, column talking about, you know, they're looking for a, a goalie because they're not even in a position to win. They're not even in a position to compete. And it's hard to evaluate your young players in that uh, scenario because you're already down 3-0 after, you know, the first 10 minutes. The Blackhawks had the same issue at the beginning of the year which is, you know, they're down, you know, giving up a goal in the first four minutes, like four out of the first, like, five games or something like that. So the fact that Jake Allen was able to hold it for, for long enough for the team to still be in it, despite the fact that they were badly outshot for most of the game, uh, probably have to give it to him. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. I feel like that it, it's so important to not get behind early, and, like, part of that is on the team, obviously, as well. But if your goalie's letting in bananas everywhere, like – I don't want to like get too down on like uh, Sam Montembeau, but he's had some, he's just not at this level. Right. And it's, it's just, it's been a rough scene. And and even Jake Allen, when he gets tired, like you can tell when he's not ready for a game because the things, things happen for him and it, uh, it doesn't work very well. Uh, There was a comment here that I actually want to touch on because I think uh, it's something that I kind of go back and forth on a little bit. It was Jonathan Convoy. He's saying that uh, well put by you, Chris, because hockey is often a weak link game. And I think that's true, but I feel like it's one of those tough situations because it's almost both, which makes no sense. But then you see guys like McDavid who can single handedly like it's like it can be a strong link game if the guy that you have is generational, but every other time it's a weak link game. Yeah, so the I, I just had this conversation uh, not a few minutes ago. Um, what I think it is, it, it, it's either or. Um, and, and this exact scenario I was talking about, it, you know, you can use whatever metric you want, but you know, let's, let's just set a baseline. Like you can say, uh, you know, at, at a very you know base level, like yeah, I think the average team scores two hundred twenty goals. So you know, can my team get over two hundred forty goals or something like that? Like you, if you want to have a plus. Uh, you know, the championship contender has like a plus 40 goal differential or something along those lines. So to get there, it's like, okay, well, we're an average defensive team, but we're uh, we're scoring 260 goals. Okay, we can get there or we can be, you know, the other way around where we're average offensively, but we're only allowing 180. Um, and so it's the same thing when we talk about roster construction, which is like, I say, set a baseline of 20 war for your team. Uh, that You know, that's in like the top 10 teams in the league. And if you get there, then you can focus on, well, I want this particular type of roster or I want this particular type of player or I want stars and scrubs or I want, you know, fully balanced. But can you fit 20 war underneath the salary cap um, for the next X amount of years? And if you can, then you should, you know, be in the Stanley Cup conversation every year. And so when it comes to a team like the Oilers, you know, if 20 war is the baseline, well, you know, McDavid is already offering you six and then uh dry side is offering you five so you're like halfway there with two players the problem is finding finding the other players to get you above that threshold and and not having uh, too many guys that bring you back down below exactly right right yeah so not having negative guys having enough players to fit you under that threshold uh because mcdavid and dry side are so valuable they're going to take up a significant portion of your salary cap and then the other key part of it and one of the reasons i've 
I've been, you know, one of the few advocates of breaking them off as amazing as they've been is because if you don't eat, you know, you have the 11, you're trying to get to 20 and you're stuck at 17. It's very hard to sort of close that gap with how good they are because you're not going to build through the draft. You don't have the uh, cap space to uh, acquire somebody through free agency. Um, they did get Zach Hyman, but they had to give up, you know, uh, you know, Adam Larson and other players to sort of get him. So you're sort of still at that same sort of like below that threshold. And then you don't have the assets to trade for someone um, in that capacity either. So like, how do you cross that threshold? And so you can contrast it with the St. Louis Blues of a few years ago, which is more of a balanced lineup or even last year's Canadians, which is like, yeah, we're not paying anybody. Well, none of our skaters uh, like $10 million a year, uh, but uh, we're going to be so deep and be able to run out four lines because everyone is between, you know, seven, you know, $3 million and $7 million, but there are really good players um, that can contribute in different ways. So I think it just really depends on the composition of your team and what you have available to you. But until you have that sort of threshold, um, you should be doing everything you can to get across it. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, is hockey the only sport that's like that, though, that can be both? There's a comment here saying, uh, is it just a weak, weak link sport, but Connor makes the other team a, a weak link? <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, it's not really how it works, but it's kind of also how it works. Well, yeah. So going back to me, David, you know, uh, as people at, that follow me on Twitter, uh, might have seen my fun comments on uh, both of the Oilers all time greats and Wayne Gretzky and Connor McDavid. I mean, Connor is an amazing player. Uh, when you see like his playoff performance, uh, it's still amazing, you know, still like top five, building like points per 60. I think he's like sixth uh, in like the past three or four years. Um, and in that situation, because so much is put up on him, uh, you see this in the NBA as well, where it is a strong link game, but it's like strong link plus like really good like not as strong links but it happened being surrounded so lebron by himself cannot win a championship right uh you know seth curry or you know kevin durant by themselves cannot win a championship they often have really good players surrounding them to sort of get them over the top because you know once you get to the final four all of those players have all those teams have equivalent players that can you know they might not be lebron all 82 games but they can be lebron for like seven game series and so it's the same thing with Conor david which is you know, he gets into these seven game series and like, yes, he individually is, is amazing, but the things that he is required to do, teams have a better chance of stopping that, obviously, <laughs> with the playbook being thrown out basically in the playoffs and all of that stuff like that. So that's a key component of it. But even still, like the fact that with the constraints that Conor David faces, also the same constraints that everybody else faces as well, it probably affects him more just because of how reliant like the Oilers are on the power play, but that also speaks to a weakness of their overall team. It's the same thing that befell the the Bruce Woodrow Capitals and the Bruce Woodrow <laughs> and Hot Ducks and the Bruce Woodrow <laughs> Minnesota <laughs> Wild, which is like they would dominate, uh, uh, you know, special teams and all of that. But special teams don't matter as much in the playoffs, and you sort of need to win in a different way. Um, and so, from that perspective, like as amazing as he is as an individual player, like that amazingness has not trained it translated to the same level in the playoffs not saying he's still not a otherworldly player in the playoffs but if he's not scoring two or three points a night that team just can't win um and that's not really on him but that's unfortunately how the team is constructed yeah uh, it's like that extreme focus that comes in the playoffs right where you can just really key in on somebody right. over a seven game series it right. changes so much of the game and 
I feel like in some ways it can be fun, like to watch a team like really key on a, a star player and shut them down. But on the other hand, it's kind of like sad that that's what the sport kind of comes to. Is <laughs> like how many guys can backpack onto Connor McDavid without getting a call and completely stop him from actually playing the game? But yeah, that's where I we mean, are. Besides, obviously, meeting with you, probably the favorite, my favorite uh, sort of like recording a podcast I ever did is a few years ago. I did a sort of uh, classic game series with uh, with Court Snader, who does, uh, uh, you know, people know him as the guy that does the manual tracking. And the game that we watched was like a game six of uh, Capitals versus Penguins. I want to say it was 2016. Uh, and I watched a few games of that series. And what was really interesting to me, obviously, you have two very talented teams. You have, you know, Crosby and Ovechkin on one side. But what determined that series was like the HBK line sort of going crazy and doing that. And, um, you know, Crosby and, and, and Malkin, you know, maybe not playing the best uh, that, to their abilities at that point in time. But the adjustments that like Mike Sullivan was making where, you know, I've rewinded like four or five times, just like how they adjusted the breakout um, in a very completely different way um, from, you know, like game one to like game six. Um, and I asked like Sam Ventura, who's not with the Sabres, um, you know, like, was that true? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were definitely looking into some stuff like that. And it's like, that is the stuff you need where like you have the talent, but your system is flexible and uh, and strong enough to be able to support that talent when they are being held down. The team is focused all on them. Okay, cool. We have support mechanisms on the other side. Um, so really good examples, obviously, like the Capitals power play. Everyone knows like Ovechkin is going to take that shot. Yep. But the Capitals have built in so many counters, you know, from the bumper slot and all that stuff. Or you're gonna like shadow Ovechkin. Great, we, we're gonna play four on three and just kill you that way. That they've been consistently like top of the league for like an unprecedented amount of time because they are so smart about how they take advantage of you focusing on that one thing. And so that's the same thing. You know, uh, this is a little far afield from where the Canadians are, but hopefully when they get to that point, like this is the approach that you know the GM can take in terms of building out the roster. Yeah, there's like layers to plans, right? Yeah. And that's where like new thinking, I think, is. Heading, whereas like old school thinking is like, we'll do it this way and it'll work oh, yeah. some of the time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like the Canadians, not to like harp on them too much because they did just win a game, but uh, like right. their power play, yeah. it hasn't really changed through multiple different coaches for right. a long time. Like it, it's been essentially the same since like Andre Markov was running it. You know, it's just that <laughs> now they don't have Andre Markov and right. point shots aren't the way to score on the power play anymore. Like people look right. back to like the 0708 season, which was like uh, when Guy Carbonell was the coach and that team like scored the lights out. I think they won the conference in the regular season. It was like a pretty low point total. Like it was very spread that year, but uh, they, I believe they won the conference that year yep. and they did most of their work on the power play and you watch that power play. And it, like today, I don't think it would be like a top, 25 power play in the league right. as good as Andre Markov was in his prime. It just like they were going for point shots all the time. That's all they wanted to do. And the game has changed so much. And I like working with uh, like the more granular data. One of the things that I found super interesting, starting with, I think it was like the 2014, 15 season is being mm -hmm. able to look at like the average shot distance or like uh, what percentage of shots come from what area yeah. and over from like 2014, 15, to 2019-20 the percentage of shots that came from like the inner slot area like j just basically the net front went cool. from like 12 percent 
to like 30% or something like that. It was something crazy. It's like teams really did focus on like quality shots after it, it seemed like there was a, when Corsi and Fenwick started to come about and be like generally accepted in the, in the yeah. NHL, you had teams like the LA Kings, right? They were just like absolutely dominant territorially and they were shooting from everywhere. Most of their shots were pretty crappy, but they were so dominant and so good defensively that eventually they're going to win anyway. And what? then, that kind of like peaked out and too many teams were playing that way. And then teams started to focus on quality shots. And then it like the passing through the middle became a big deal, getting to the net front and not just as like a standing in front of the net type deal, but like getting shots from there, getting one timers from the net front became a huge deal. And you can see that in the data. And I find that super interesting that you can actually follow where the league is going specifically from data. Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. And I've talked about this a lot. Like, what is this sort of corner three-point shot for for hockey? Or, you know, what is, uh, uh, you know, spread formation for hockey or something like that, particularly at five-on-five, that sort of unlocks um, a, a new way of thinking about offense. You know, the Houston Rockets uh, a few years ago, just like, we're going to shoot 40 threes a game. And, and the crazy part to your point was like, like the Kings, they weren't even making a lot of them. Uh, that was the part that people didn't understand. It was like Houston actually never really had people that were good at shooting threes, but they, the math was just so much in their favor. Like you didn't even need the personnel to do it. It was just like, it just made so much sense mathematically that you have to do it. And so it's like, what is that, uh, you know, in game theory is called the dominant strategy, which is like, no matter what your opponent does, this is still the best thing for you to do regardless. And, and so from that perspective, like I've been curious about the concept of like sort of vertical, uh, uh, sort of horizontal spacing, um, which is, you know, a lot of, a lot of focus has been getting shots in the slot and sort of the sort of core home play area. And, you know, obviously on the power play, which you see is something a little bit different, which is more like, you know, cross ice passes and all of that and sort of forcing the goalies to move. And then taking advantage of that movement and scoring off of like, you know, uh, you know, tic-tac-toe passes. And at five on five, I'm more curious to see if like instead of focusing purely on getting the slots in the middle in the shot, uh, and shots in the middle in the slots, what if teams started focusing on because I do saw this on the NHL 22, so uh <laughs> this is probably where I'm coming from, but uh focusing on like getting like rebounds on like very tight angles and then uh you know, from one side, you know, the goalie's, you know, hugging the post on one side, you sort of shoot it off the pass, and now the sort of other side of the net is wide open, or you can sort of send the pass back if, if that's open, and now the goalie's going back and forth, and that sort of increases the likelihood that they can't stop one of those shots. Um, I don't know if that's something, like, viable, but just watching a bunch of power plays, like, uh, just seeing, uh, you know, players like Marner and Panera and just be able to sling those, like, passes across the ice, with velocity and accuracy that no one else can do right. and like how much that opens up for other teammates of just like, you know, for someone else, you got to bobble the pass and that closes up that lane, but the, you know, the pass like hits on the tape and I've got like a two second window to make something happen that other players can't do. Like how valuable is that for teams to be able to do that five on five? And I think to be honest, that's one of, one of the things that the Canadians did today, but I think it's one of the things that they struggle with on a regular basis is that outside of drawing, as you said, you know, Suzuki's not, you know, he's a good playmaker. He'll make the sort of obvious plays and he'll make them well, but he won't create an advantage on his own. Um, Druin can make the plays, but once again, won't create an advantage on his own. Josh Anderson can create the advantage by his hard net driving, but 
can't take advantage of teams being out of position and setting someone else up, you know, with his, you know, particular gravity. So how do you sort of balance all that out and to create a roster that's better than the sum of his parts? Yeah, it, it's tough. And I feel like as much as uh, the last game was really rough, I think that Dominique Ducharme actually hit on something a little bit with his little switching up of the lines thing, because yeah. I think uh, Arturi Lekkanen does a lot for that, uh, for that line to, to add some, some effort, you know, uh, and splitting up Brennan Gallagher onto a different line from Lekkanen. It seemed like the Lekkanen Evans and Gallagher line was really dominating over the last stretch there, but it's one of those situations where like, if you remove one of those guys, does it hurt the line that much? And exactly. the answer was no. And it allowed them to bump to Foley down to the Anderson and Dvorak line. And that line has been now incredible for two games in a row, despite how awful the last game was like to Foley added a lot of, uh, it, it's weird. Cause he, it's weird. You, you look at Tyler to and you don't think he's a great rush player, right? Cause he's not the most yeah. amazing skater, but he's yeah. so smart with the puck and good at like, like alternating his speed a little bit to kind of force players to make uh, like a a checking attempt that then he'll find a way to beat them and get past them, that it creates more opportunities for Dvorak and more for Anderson to kind of like speed in and maybe hit him with a pass on a partial break. So that's worked out really well. And I like what Lekkanen brings to that Suzuki Caulfield line. It's not like he's going to add a lot of goal scoring, even though he did score tonight. But yeah. he's a guy who's like a mucker that's going to get them the puck and insulate them a little bit defensively as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, what you said about the the rush, and I say this all the time about McDavid, uh, and people people recognize that as well. Like, there's not some divine insight from me that Connor McDavid is a really good player. Uh, <laughs> but what, you know, what it is, they talk about this, like, if you actually, like, scientifically, scientifically break down, like, you know, the Flash or Superman and, and running at, like, supersonic sonic speeds. Um, you know, it's basically be impossible for like a normal brain to process that much information that quickly. Uh, and so for economy, David to, you know, not only always have his foot on the gas, which I think is an important part, like, yes, he's extremely fast, but he always has his foot on the gas is always take advantage of that speed in a way that other players are, are, are not taught to do on a regular basis and not allowed to do based on their coaching and systems, but then also being able to you know, there's a reason why he's going through four, you know, guys at once. It's not just because he's faster than all of them. Um, you actually see he's subtly changing speeds as he's going through, but he also knows what speed to go. Like, okay, I go through here at like 10 miles per hour and then like here through 20 and then back here through 15 because I need to slow down and trick the goalie and then like score. And I think that's the part that like really separates him from everybody else, even like generationally. And so, you know, once again, uh, you don't have to be the fastest guy. But if you can see like that opening and go in there, you know, Barry Sanders, like the football running back was the same way where his straight line speed wasn't the fastest, but you see that hole and be able to get there before anybody else. And then once he's there, he's like, okay, I know what to do next two steps before anybody else. And so uh, as Wayne Gretzky always said, you know, it's like thinking faster instead of having to skate faster. And so, yeah. Yeah. It's like that now pretty famous story of Connor McDavid, where I think it was like a biosteel sports camp and they did like just straight up sprinting with a bunch sure. of players and he finished like sixth out of the wow. 25 or 30 players that they were doing. And then they had a, a test where you had to go like left or right. And you right. would only know at the last second based on like a red or green light. Right. Yeah. And he blitzed everyone. Right. So it was like, wow. it's the process of being processing and reacting to information quicker than everyone else alongside the speed that makes him so special. And yeah, I think 
obviously not anywhere close to the same level, but Toffoli has like some level of that and what makes him a really decent rush player. Um, for anything else for this game, I don't, I don't know if there's much else. I got to, totally off topic, but when I'm watching the game in the first period, uh, my son watches with me now, and sure. I like take notes during the game, so sometimes he's like, I want to take notes too. And he <laughs> drew me today on the notes. I don't know if you can see with the light. Is that going to... It's too white. Here, let's see if I can... There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, here we go. Uh, let me just turn this. There we go. There yeah, we go. so oh, this is old. apparently me. <laughs> yes. And this is my angry face when I put him in timeout, like, last week. <laughs> that, should be, that should be the Canadian's mascot. That, that right there. Yeah, yeah. It's better than Yuppie, for sure. So I, he was, like, <laughs> giving me shit while watching hockey. But yeah, we've got a young hockey fan on our hands there now it's been four years in the making but he's finally yeah. interested which is kind of fun that's awesome yeah so hopefully i can get him to uh he seems to like the montreal team he says but uh <laughs> we'll see how that lasts <laughs> it, it, it's not too late for for him to reconsider you know it's yeah like yeah you know i, I think about it all the time it's like all all of the crappy teams i support like do i really want to pass that down like yeah I, uh, don't do make decisions to too early well, you have kids and you want them to live a better life than you had. And I was like, I don't know if I want it to be that much better, but like, I also don't want them to suffer <laughs> in the ways I have unnecessarily because I didn't know any better. Yeah, absolutely. Was there anything else that stood out to the game? Or maybe should we circle back on Gorton a little bit? Um, I, think- uh, I mean, no, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, sort of giving up two two goals at the end. Uh, you know, one young good for Crosby to sort of get off the side and, and, and yeah, definitely know, get some positive wins in, in the scoring column. Yeah, I think it's been a little bit of a forgotten man with uh, with Vescan's chase. Um, and I think to be honest, like sort of going into the Rama historically underrated. I think you know Connor McDavid is such a visually stunning player in terms of what he brings to the table that people like just purely look at the point totals of like Crosby in his first couple of years. Uh, and then, you know, look at his war impacts and all that stuff for like, you know, before they can even track them, but especially once he hit his prime, uh, I think people are underrating how good of a player he, he was and, and sort of still is on the right night. Um, so, you know, good for him. Uh, you know, I think, you know, the, the announcer was talking about, you know, the, the Canadians are showing a little bit more compete, you know, now and all that stuff like that. I was like, I, I mean, I'm getting out shot by like 15, 20 shots. Like, yeah. They allowed that. 50 shots. Yeah. 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 Like, so I was like, uh, yeah. It always looks a little bit different when the score, a scoreboard is tilted in your favor. Um, but that was probably, uh, you know, something. Uh, didn't, you know, I'm always curious about Nick Suzuki because I've probably been more down on him than, uh, than most uh, over, over the past couple of years. Um, didn't really stand out much to me. Um, so yeah, so I'm curious to see that. Uh, I think Cole Kalfa had, had a pretty good night. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, did pretty well overall. Uh, Sammy Niku, uh had a pretty good night as well. So you know, hopefully that can continue because you know, going back to the early point about Josh Anderson, if this team is to break out where they are and to get back to a level of being in the playoffs and competing, the guys that are going to do it are you know uh, Suzuki, Josh Anderson, just by based on the length of his contract. Uh, Cole Caulfield, uh, and then, you know, San Diego or some other sort of off the radar pick to sort of refill that blue line uh, that desperately, desperately needs it. So um, the fact that they, for the most part, had a good game overall, hopefully this is the start of a longer term trend. 
Yeah, I mean, that that would definitely be good for the Canadians. I know that uh, there was a couple of people saying uh, we should talk about Matthias Norlander. I haven't looked at his like numbers tonight, but he did save that goal, which was nice. Like, I think him getting like a highlight for a defensive play should go a little bit of a way to getting him a little bit more ice time. I know that uh, the ice time overall tonight, I don't think he had a lot. Uh, it It is one of those situations where you're like, what are you waiting for if you want to yeah. try this guy out? Like, Caulfield only played 10 minutes. Wow, I thought that was a second period update. Hailing only seven minutes. That, that's right. more to be expected. Norlander played 950. If you're not willing to play the young kid who you think is going to be a decently good right. prospect at this point in the season, when you, <laughs> you know, heading into this one, have won five out of 22 games, that speaks right. very poorly of what the coaching staff thinks of him. Right. Yeah. I mean, and going back to the point we were talking about with, uh, with Mark Bergman, it's like, you know, you always run the risk of a GM being on the last year of the contract and making sort of short sided moves to do this, to keep their job and all that. Same thing with coaches. And to me, like, you know, and like my professional work setting, when you have like this sort of conflict of interesting constraints in place, I'm like, all right, well, you have to do this, but contingent on this, this, and this. So it's like, you know, you know, you have to, you know, make us a million dollars of revenue next year, but like, you can't like cook the books to do it. Like it has to be like this particular way. It's the same way with like, you know, developing prospects, particularly on a team that, as you said, is sort of really on the outside looking in for the playoff picture. Like, yes, great. You won a game today, but if the people who are going to win us a lot more games in the future than you likely are to as a coach uh, for the next couple of years are not getting playing time and not developing correctly. And that's, a, that's where you have to question does this make sense? Is this the right approach? Is this the right person to lead us to that next level? Or should we make a change there as well? Yeah. And I think like the answer to that from our perspective is relatively obvious. And I mean, anytime you have a new GM come in, if you're bringing a coach uh, that's from the last GM, there's a ticking clock, right? Unless you immediately win a Stanley cup, like in Chicago and like, still you always heard about like Kenville and, uh, and Bowman butting heads, but it lasted a right. long time because of the immediate success, right? So right. there's no immediate success coming right now. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe they'll be a little bit better next year, but this year is going to be a grind. Uh, I'll wrap it up because I've kept you way too long already, Chris, from yeah, the, the crash at the beginning, and I really appreciate you coming on. Before I let you go, tell everyone where they can find you because uh, people need more Chris Watkins in their life. Oh, man, that, that sounds like a horrible, uh, <laughs> a horrible outcome. Uh, yeah, I'm actually I, I'm actually writing again for some reason. Uh, I, I have some uh, hot takes and some thoughts. Uh, so I probably will post them on Hockey Graphs, although I am working on something else in the background. Uh, so HockeyGraphs.com. Uh, you can follow me at, uh, at yellow underscore pinato. Uh, on Twitter. Um, so wouldn't recommend doing that, but if you uh, really hate yourself, then uh, go ahead. Um, I promise to be nice to Canadians fans because, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you all don't need any further any, any, any further misery um, being added on my part. So this is true. No one needs to twist the knife right now. The Leafs fans are definitely trying to do that on their own. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for joining me, Chris, and thanks everyone for tuning in and uh, keeping with us through the crash and this. Uh, horrible season that we're in the middle of but hey you got a nice win you got a bunch of goals and in montreal when they score more than five goals they get free chicken wings at casual spore so free chicken wings for everybody